Our scripture passage this evening brings us to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 14. As we read verses 1 through 23, would you please stand for the reading of God's word this evening? Hear now the word of God. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the other side and a rocky crag on the other side, on the one side, and then a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sinna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to the men. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us. Then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time and had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel had hit, who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed, 
beyond Beth Avon. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Lord, tonight, would you give us more than ideas and facts about history? Would you give us a real understanding and a conviction of what you would have us do and how you want us to live? Send your spirit tonight to make it so. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you just pick up the story this evening in chapter 14, but you forget everything that came before, you will miss the gravity of what happens here tonight. I want to remind you where we were last week. Israel began to suffer under its faithless king, Saul. And Saul didn't wait for Samuel. He took He took it upon himself to be both the priest and the king. Remember, he performed the sacrifice. He performed the offering that Samuel was supposed to make. So because of this, Saul made excuses, right? It was your fault, Samuel. It was the people's fault. It was the Philistines' fault. And the consequence, at the end of that passage, the consequence was severe. It was Samuel's pronouncement of God saying, Your kingdom shall not continue. That is a very severe consequence of Saul's misbehavior. And this lands on the story like a a ton of bricks because, in a sense, it brings everything after this moment into question. Um, What's not in question is that God still loves his people and God is still committed to Israel even though he is not committed to Saul. He's committed to Israel. He's not committed to Saul, and those are not the same thing. Now, what did we see last week? We saw God is raising up a man after his own heart. He said it himself. And so God hasn't abandoned Israel, but still the situation in which God is going to save them is still dire. It's still a dire circumstance. Last week, we didn't see a resolution. There are no blacksmiths in Israel, so people have very few weapons. Remember that. They, they introduced this idea that they have this army of farmers And we never found out what happened with the army of farmers, with farm implements and tools and things like that. And so what have they been doing? They've been sharpening their their axes and their tools and getting ready to fight with those things, with their second-rate tools, really. And so the Philistines have this massive army. And what was the last thing that we read last week? It was this. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And so the Israelites are dispirited. They're, they're cut off from their friends in the north. They're vastly outnumbered. Um, basically, they have two real weapons in an army of probably 30, 30, against an army of about 36,000 well-armed Philistines. Now this, this is a situation God can work with. Okay. And, and all that happens, I want you to keep something in mind. God hasn't rejected Israel. He's rejected Saul. He hasn't rejected Israel. And so when we see a victory in a passage like this today, it doesn't mean that anything's changed. It doesn't mean that God has cooled in his opinion towards Saul. It doesn't mean that he's changed his mind and decided that he's okay with Saul now. It just means that he's going to take care of Israel no matter what happens. He's not going to let the ship go down with the captain. All right, Saul is going down, but the ship is going to be all right. 
And so tonight we see God's rescue at Israel of Israel and the sidelining of Saul. And they both happen all at once through somebody who's not probably expecting that it's going to produce this effect, and that's Jonathan. And Jonathan really is sort of this undisputed hero in the life of David. When you read the, the narratives of 1 and 2 Samuel, when you read the narratives of uh, the rest of the Old Testament, one of the things you see is that Jonathan is like a gleaming light. He's a gleaming light in the text. He is one of the most beautiful examples of faith and friendship and faithfulness that we have in the Bible. And, and for us tonight, he's this picture, especially of faith in action. In fact, tonight's passage is really a contrast between Saul and his son. As we compare Saul and as we compare him with his son, we see more than just a portrait of two men, more than just uh, Israelite history or, or something like that. Instead, Saul is an example of inactive faith, right? faith that does not move. He is somebody who talks about faith. He's somebody who talks about religion. For Saul, religion functions as something to give him credibility in the eyes of the people. But religion is not something that goes to his heart. And so Saul is is an example of inactive faith. And Jonathan is an example of an active faith. Two very, very different men. Um, And so we learn three things about real faith from Jonathan tonight. First, we see that faith searches. And when I say it searches, I mean that it searches for an opportunity to get put to work. Faith is not content just to rest and do nothing. Second, we see that faith acts. And then third, we see that faith delivers. Saul should not be sitting still, but he is. His son sees that sitting still is not a legitimate option, and so he acts. Might it be that God has a similar lesson for us, for each and every one of us tonight, that he wants us to actually put our faith into action, not just to simply be something that's spoken of. First tonight, Jonathan teaches us that faith searches for an opportunity. Notice what Saul is doing first. What is Saul doing? Well, the passage paints sort of a sad picture in these these three verses. Saul is sitting around with about 600 men in a cave. He's one of the people... Hiding under the rocks. We talked about this last week, how pathetic it is that Israel is hiding in the tombs, hiding in the caves, and that's what Saul's doing. He's not acting, he's just hiding, and he's got these 600 men with him. But here's what's really interesting is who is with him. There's somebody very significant that's with with Saul, and it's this fellow, Ahijah. Now, we haven't met Ahijah before. Ahijah's not exactly a household name. Uh, when you're, if you were giving me a Bible quiz before I was preparing this passage and you said, hey, Adam, where is Ahijah in the Bible? I would have drawn a blank. This guy is, in a sense, important, and in a sense, he's a nobody. And you'll see why in a second. He is the nephew of Ichabod. And if you remember, Ichabod was Phinehas' son. So remember how he was born. Phinehas... Uh, his, his mother is giving birth, and he is born, and Ichabod comes out, and his mother names him Ichabod, and his name means the glory is gone, and then she dies. And so this is, Ichabod is a kid who has grown up without his mother. His name means the glory is gone. He has a very pathetic name, I'm guessing, Ichabod, not a popular name in Israel, um, 
Um, Saul, and he also is Saul's or Eli's last remaining family. He is Eli's great nephew. And look what he's wearing. He's wearing the linen ephod. He's like a, a cheap knockoff of the real prophet. You could just imagine this guy sort of playing off his priestly family legacy, pointing everybody to who his great uncle was. And yet this guy, he's from a family that God has rejected. God told Eli that his family was going to be gone, that he was rejecting him and he had rejected his descendants. And so here he is. The priestly family that God has rejected is now, it seems, the new prophet for Saul, right? Because he can't have Samuel. Samuel's abandoned him. Samuel's already told him that God's taken this kingdom away from you. And I love how there's, this, there's a commentator named David Jobling, and he says this. He says, his own royal glory gone, where else would we expect Saul to be than with a relative of glory gone? Isn't that good? His own glory gone, where else would we expect him to be than with a relative of glory gone? And so Saul is not in a great place, and he has no real initiative. I mean, consider this. The Philistines have 36,000 men. They're closing in. Saul has nothing left. He has already tried something, and it failed spectacularly. He, he's just heard that God has rejected him. The wind is completely out of this man's sails. Jonathan, on the other hand, is in a very different place. He looks at his armor bearer, and he says, I'm bored. Let's go on an adventure. He basically says, I don't have a plan. Let's just go. Let's see what happens. Maybe we'll be useful to God somehow. And that's, I just love Jonathan. He is so fun to, to, to go with. I want to see what this guy is up to. I want to see what this guy is going to do. And so Jonathan goes up toward the Philistine camp with his armor bearer. And, and look at the belief he has that makes this possible. He makes a statement in verse 6. He says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Have you ever heard the term paper tiger? You know, a paper tiger it refers to something in our life that we're afraid of that looks scary and it looks dangerous, but it actually can't do anything to us. That's that's what the term paper tiger refers to. And Jonathan, you see in his words here, this belief that he has about the universe, right? Jonathan knows that in a universe where God is the Lord, everything is a paper tiger. That's how Jonathan sees the world around himself. Because that's what he says here. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord. Not even 36,000 well-prepared Philistines. I want this kind of of fearlessness. I want this kind of confidence in my life, in the sovereignty, in the goodness, in the wisdom of God like Jonathan has. Think of the sort of things that we, we occupy ourselves with, you know, the things that we sort of worry ourselves with. You know, we worry about food and we worry about our houses and we worry about jobs and we worry about storms maybe and we worry about clothing and, and we worry about our children and what they're up to and whether they're safe. We worry about politics. We just worry about numberless things. In fact, there's really no limit to the sort of things that we can worry and trouble ourselves with. 
We can find things to fear and worry about even though everything in our world seems to be doing great. At least I find that in my life. I can always find something to be worried about. Do you ever think to yourself, nothing can hinder the Lord? That belief that Jonathan has here, nothing can hinder the Lord. And that means something about all the paper tigers around me in my life. That I oftentimes and probably, in fact, not probably, am way too lacking. Whatever we're about to see next, keep this in mind. Jonathan holds a theological belief about God and that drives his action. So what Jonathan is about to do doesn't happen even though he seems like a free-spirited kind of a guy. He seems like, a, like a, uh, just a wild guy who wants to go have fun. But don't be misled by that. He's not like that at all. His theology moves him. This is a guy who has solid theology and he has faith to go with it. And so that's why theology is important, by the way. Theology changes our life. It changes how we act. It changes how we feel. It changes how we think about the situation. I can't tell if Jonathan is afraid here. If Jonathan is afraid, God is throwing that fear to the wind. He's doing something for Jonathan here. And this is the reality. In a universe where God is the king, we can live and move and act without wondering all the time if everything is going to go off the rails. Everything is always on God's rails, even if it goes off of our rails. It's always on God's rails all the time. And so Christian, our God is the Lord. Think about this. Nothing can hinder his hand. Jonathan believes that. Second tonight, we learn from Jonathan that faith doesn't just seek an opportunity, but faith actually acts. It puts the conviction that we hold into actual practice. Look at this. Jonathan doesn't, doesn't just sit at the camp with one of the only two swords in the entire Israelite nation. Put his feet up by the fire and tell his armor bearer, you know, I've been thinking about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's very interesting. But, you know, I, I really come down very firmly on the side that believes that God is sovereign. He is. You know. Nothing can stay his hand. Isn't that interesting? What do you say about that armor bearer? Let's have a great conversation here by the fire. <laughs> that is not what happens. Instead, he is facing down this army and he is saying it. Our God is sovereign. Let's go put that belief into action. And they do it. He sort of settled in his mind. He's going to go up to the Philistines. And if they say, come here, then he's going to go. And he's going to believe that God is sending him. And if they want to come to him, then he's going to know this isn't the plan that God wants for us. Well, the Philistines do call Jonathan up. And Jonathan really does go up. He's confident that God is delivering the Philistines over to them. Now, how do I know that Jonathan is confident? This is the easiest question. It's because he goes. That's how you know he's confident. That's how you know he trusts. It's because he goes. His going is the evidence that he believes. And everything that we believe is just ideas and philosophies until we're facing down the enemy garrison 
and being told to put our money where our mouth is. Everything that we believe is just ideas and philosophies until that moment comes. And Jonathan is now put in this situation where he has an opportunity to act, and he does. He, he attacks along with his faithful sidekick, and the text says they killed about 20 men. That's an incredible number of men, especially when you consider the sidekick doesn't have a weapon. right? He doesn't have a real weapon anyway, but he's probably got a shovel or I don't know what kind of <laughs> implements they had back then. But here's, here's what I want you to see. Jonathan is not a talker. He is a doer. The book of James is crystal clear on how important this is. He says, be not doers of the word, only deceiving yourselves. Don't be, don't be hearers only deceiving yourselves. He says, be doers of the word. This is so interesting. James says that if all you do is talk, 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 you're a deceived person. If all you do is talk about God, talk about theology, talk about doing church, but you don't put it into action, he says you're a deceived person. How many deceived Christians are out there? Do you ever think for a moment you could be a deceived Christian? If your beliefs are just beliefs, And they don't result in action. They don't result in a changed life. In something different. Then you're deceived. Because you really think that the things you know have sunk down into your heart. But they haven't affected anything else. It is blatant self-deception. And we are deeply self-deceived creatures. We always want to believe the best about ourselves. And usually the worst about our neighbor. But there is this moment here, isn't there? This, this moment where Jonathan made the whole plan, but then they say the thing that calls him up. They, they say, come up to us and we'll show you a thing. <laughs> Have you ever seen less effort put into tricking someone so you can murder them? <laughs> no effort at all. Come up to us and we'll show you a thing. At least say something interesting. <laughs> we'll show you a thing. Um, they didn't even say what he should come up to see. That's so funny. But he hears this word, and that is the moment where the decision happens. This is the moment where he finds out what kind of a person he is. This is the moment where Jonathan gets to find out, what sort of man am I? Am I a deceived talker, or am I a man of action? Am I a deceived talker, or am I a man of action? And he doesn't know until that moment comes. And Jonathan looks at his companion and he says, come up after me. And that's when they see what they're really made of. In a sense, until Jonathan actually follows through, that moment where they say, come up to us, we'll show you a thing. And he takes that step toward them. He doesn't really know what his faith is like. And you never know. He may even be surprised. He may even be surprised in this moment. It's when the moment comes where our faith is actually able to be put into action that we find out what we're made of. I had a good friend, and he was presented with an opportunity to commit a a serious and grievous sin. And and even when he told me about, about the sin that was offered to him, I could sense the weight of the temptation. And he told me, he said, Adam, if you had asked me an hour before what I would have done if someone had said that to me, 
I would have told you I was going to give in to that temptation. And then he told me, he said, when the moment came, he said he learned something about himself. He said, he said, it turns out I really do love my wife and I really do love my God. And I didn't know it until that moment. And, and until I said no to that sin I was presented with, I didn't know if I loved God really. And I don't, didn't know how much I really loved my wife. I thought that was so interesting. He was surprised in the moment to find out what he was really made of. Our faith has to show itself in action, in how we feel, in what we believe, in how we resist sin, in how we please him with our lives. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Jonathan shows us that in living color tonight. Third tonight, we learned that faith delivers. The assault of Jonathan is enough to create a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The whole place is in mass panic. Now, we don't know if it's one of those situations where everybody is ganging up on Jonathan, if they've started to turn on each other. We don't exactly know all of the confusion and what it looks like, but we do know there's panic going on. And Saul's people are a few miles off, but he has watchers who are sort of looking in and they're reporting what is happening to Saul. And Saul figures out that, that his son is over there. And so Saul calls Ahijah, the son of no glory, to his side. But before Ahijah can do anything useful, at least, Saul decides to join in the battle. So they get to the Philistine camp, and the, the Philistines are all attacking each other. Hebrews start coming out of the woodwork. This is a golden opportunity not to be wasted. And they don't waste it. They, they fight with their gardening tools and their, their tiny army. They, they attack and, and they hack until the Philistines are left fleeing and being hunted in the hills. It's a glorious moment for Israel. And then look what the text says in verse 23. It says, so the Lord saved Israel that day. So the Lord saved Israel that day. I want you to think about the role of faith here. Jonathan was one, the one who had the faith. He sought out an opportunity, he acted in faith, and then God used his faith, the text says, to save Israel. That's the phrase that the author uses. Jonathan's faith saved Israel. Now, it wasn't Jonathan's faith that saved Israel, it was the faith that took hold of the God who saved Israel. This is, this is very important. Simply having general faith doesn't save you. It is always the object of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. Think about, think about it like this. If you cross a bridge, it isn't your faith that's holding you up. It is not your faith that's keeping you out of the water. The bridge is what's keeping you out of the water. All your faith is doing is using the thing that kept you out of the water. All your faith is doing is putting into practice the thing that's saving you. And so in the same way, if you're a Christian, I want you to think rightly about your faith in Christ. You are not saved by your faith. You are saved by the Jesus that you take hold of by faith. And yet your faith is the instrument that God uses to give you what Jesus provides. What does Jesus give? When we put our faith in Jesus, we are united to Christ. It is a spiritual union. And he gets all of our ugliness. He gets all of our sin. He gets all of our unrighteousness. And we get all of his benefits. We get adoption. We get justification. We get declared righteous in his sight. 
And we get sanctification. God begins a work in our life to make us look more and more like Jesus. That's a fight that's going to be lifelong. Those are things we get by putting our faith in Jesus. We don't do those things. Jesus does them for us. All the salvation Jesus gives is accomplished by him, applied by him, and protected by him. And yet those gifts come to us by the instrument of faith, which is a gift from him. Do you see how everything he's done is all his work? Everything we have is his work. God saved Israel, not Jonathan. God saved Israel. One man stepped out in faith, and salvation came to God's people. Jonathan doesn't just teach us about the quality of faith that we should have. He teaches us about the quality of the God that we already should have by faith. No situation is hopeless for Israel because Yahweh is their God. Yahweh is their God. That's why the situation isn't hopeless. You don't look at the quality of an individual like Jonathan or Saul or anyone else in Israel to know that Israel is going to be secure. The reason you know Israel is secure is because who Israel's God is. Jonathan believed that, and tonight we see the fruit of that belief. We see the fruit of that faith. Do you sense the challenge here before us tonight? I believe God wants to take each of us from being timid, maybe immobile Christians, to being action-oriented people who look to the Savior for all the great rescue that he can bring. And yet the challenge is this. Let, not, let us not only be hearers of the word. Let's not only be believers of the word. Let's be Livers of the word, doers of the word. We believe these things, let's act then. Let's start on a one-on-one basis, us before God, fighting sin as it comes up in our hearts. Just like Jonathan's doing, right? Let's start by looking at the commands of God and wisdom of God that we see in Scripture. And, and when we see the sort of things that need to happen in our lives, let's not look at them and say, well, we can never beat those. Why don't we have the same attitude about our own sin that Jonathan has about these Philistines? God cares more about our sin. He cares more about the state of our heart. When we read Proverbs, for example, Proverbs is a very practical book. Are we we living out what we see there? Are we seeing the fruits of the wise man lived out in our lives? When, When we read a book like James and we see what faith in action looks like, are we doing any of that? Do we care about the poor, the hungry, the widow, the orphan? How do we live with our money? Are we, are we giving people? God challenges us in Scripture to act, not only to believe. In fact, our lives are the battlefield and our actions are where we find out what we really believe and what we're really made of. It is so easy to talk, talk, talk about God. But is any of that talk from a heart that really believes any of it? In a sense, I think you really never know until you follow Jonathan's lead tonight. You will not know if your faith is real until you step out and live by faith and let it impact how you live each and every day of your life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you sent your Son into this world as a Savior of men and women.
boys and girls who are by nature faithless. You sent your son to rescue people like us who sin in word and in thought and in deed, and yet you also sent your son into the world for people who have an interest in religion, but no real faith. And so we pray for two things tonight. We pray that you would keep giving us the gift of faith, because without your gift, we won't believe at all. But we also pray that the faith we have would be real, that we would really see what we believe show itself in our daily lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.